0: You understand that the day you became a Christian, you entered into the fellowship, the fellowship of everyone else who knows and follows Jesus Christ. It's not mystical, it's just true. It's a reality. You're in the fellowship.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington, Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his series with Part 6 of The Apostles' Proclamation. If you're a follower of Christ, is your life one marked by increasing joy? Tom will continue to examine the two purposes of the gospel proclamation in the first letter of John. All believers can have the assurance of fellowship through Jesus Christ and the deep and abiding joy that believers have because of their assurance of salvation and fellowship with God and His people. And friend, it gets better over time. This joy is a lasting and sustaining joy, one that remains even in the darkest of circumstances. Do you have this assurance and joy? Consider the question as we join Tom Pennington now with today's message on the Word Unleashed.
0: Now the only place John uses the Greek word translated fellowship is right here in this first chapter. He doesn't write it in such a way as to say, I'm writing so that you can gain fellowship, so that you can get fellowship, obtain fellowship. It's not what he says. Instead, he uses the present tense, which means I want you to continue Having and enjoying the fellowship that already exists. And by the way, we'll see this down in chapter 1. Notice verse 6. Here's the other use of fellowship in his letter. He says, If we say that we are having fellowship with God and yet are walking in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we are walking in the light as he himself is in the light, we are having fellowship with one another. In other words, if you're a true Christian, you have fellowship. You're in the fellowship. So in, back in verse 3, fellowship is something every Christian enjoys already because he's entered into a relationship with God. But what exactly does it mean to have fellowship or relationship with God and His Son? Let me give it to you in a single sentence. It means that we have come to know God as our Father and His Son as our Savior and Lord. That's the fellowship we've entered into. That's the new relationship we have. You remember in John's gospel, in John 17, you have the high priestly prayer of Christ. In verse 3, he begins that, and Jesus prays this to the Father. He says, this is eternal life. Everybody who has eternal life, this is what they have. It is to know you, the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's what John is saying in this letter. Let me show you how he develops this. Now, get your thumbs ready, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to blaze you through 1 John. I want you to see how often he, he defines this issue of fellowship as something objective, as a relationship into which we've entered. So here we go. Obviously, we'll look at these in detail as we get to them, but let me, I just want you to see how it permeates this letter. Chapter 2, verse 3. Just notice the phrases. We have come to know him. Verse 5, we are in Him, that is in Christ, inseparably united to Him. He's our legal representative. Go down to verses 13 and 14. You know Him. By the way, look at verse 12 of chapter 2, and you see the prerequisite for coming to know Him. It's having your sins forgiven. Verse 23, you have the Father. Verse 27, you abide in him. That word abide simply means to stay or remain. Remember, there were those who left. You remain, you abide. He goes on to say in verse 29, we are born of him. Chapter 3, verse 1, we are children of God. Verse 15, we have eternal life abiding in us. Verse 24, he abides in us or remains in us by the Spirit whom he's given us. You have the Spirit who stays with you. Verse 7 of chapter 4, believers have been born of God and know God. Verse 12, God abides in us. How? By the Spirit he gave us. Verse 13, we abide or remain in him and he in us. He's given us of his Spirit. Verse 15, God abides in the believer, and the believer abides or remains in God. Verse 16, the one who loves abides in God, and God abides in him. Chapter 5, verse 1, the believer is born of God and loves the Father. Verse 11, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Verse 13, believers have eternal life. Verse 19, we know that we are of God. Verse 20, we know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, why did I take the time to show you all that? Because what I want you to see is that if you have believed in Jesus, you know God as Father, and you know His Son as Savior and Lord. You are in the fellowship. There's nothing mystical to seek. You're in. You're in the fellowship. And he wants you to know that you have fellowship with God. It's already a reality. It became a reality the day you were born again, the day you trusted in Christ. So I plead with you, clear your mind and Christian experience of all of that mystical clutter that will only be destructive to your Christian life and experience. John writes this letter not so we can have a subjective experience that we lack, but so that we can enjoy the assurance of an objective relationship that we already have. Go back to verse 3 of chapter 1. John tells us there that he writes so that we can grow in our knowledge of, our confidence in this fellowship or this relationship that we already have with the Father and His Son. If you doubt that, he he stresses the same purpose at the end of the letter. Go to chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And verse 14, you can have confidence before God. You know he's your Abba and he hears you. He's your father. You have this relationship. We need to know, folks, that we have a relationship with God as Father and with his Son as Savior and Lord. There's another part of this however, that John wants us to grasp, not only do we need to know that we have that relationship, but secondly, we need to grow in the depth of our relationship with God. So we need to know that we have had the relationship if we're true believers, and we need to grow in the depth of that relationship. Now, 1 John 2, turn there with me, 1 John 2, verses 12 to 14, contains both of these ideas or senses. Let me just give you an overview. First of all, in in verse 13, midway in verse 13, he talks about having a relationship with God as your Father. Notice, I have written to you children because you know the Father. That is, you have a relationship with God as Father. We saw that through the whole book. So there's having the relationship with God as Father. But in this same passage, we see growing in our experience of that relationship with God as Father. Look at the beginning of verse 13. Here's another level of spiritual maturity. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. That's different than you just know him as father. It means you know him at a deeper, more mature level. Same thing in verse 14. I've written to you fathers because you know him who's been from the beginning. So in other words, to be a Christian is to be in the fellowship. It's to have a relationship with the brothers and sisters sitting around you as brothers and sisters, and to be a child of God and to have a relationship with Him as Father. That's a reality. But we need to grow in the depth of that relationship. Colossians 1.10, Paul writes, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, listen to this, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In 2 Peter 3.18, Peter writes, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grow in your knowledge of the Father, grow in your knowledge of the Son. What does that mean? What does it mean to grow in the depth of your relationship with God and His Son? Again, hear me, this is not mystical. This is not something you feel. This is not an experience you have. We live by faith in God's Word and not by our feelings. In fact, let me share something with you that one of my spiritual mentors shared with me. Feeling is not the engine of the Christian life, it's the caboose. Maybe some of you have never seen a caboose. It's that last car on the train, all right? The engine comes first, the caboose is at the end. Y- your feelings are not supposed to drive your Christian life. If you rely on your feelings, let me just tell you, you will will be up and down and up and down because your feelings are up and down. Don't let your feelings, your emotions, be the engine of your Christian life. Now, I'm not saying emotion isn't a part of the Christian life, of course, but it's the caboose. It follows. It's dragged along by the engine. So what is the engine? It's your knowledge of God and His Word. Now, don't misunderstand me. You can know a lot and not grow, but let me say... You can't grow without knowing. That's the engine. Knowledge is the engine. Knowing God is not primarily subjective. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's it's not an experience. It's objective. I was reminded of this when I was teaching through Exodus 33 recently. You remember I was studying this with you. Turn there with me. Exodus 33. This is God's sermon on His name this whole passage sort of introduces that. And here in the middle of all of this was this verse that just jumped out at me. Exodus 33, verse 13. You know, obviously Moses is interceding with God in light of the golden calf incident, and he's asking God for certain things. Verse 13, he says this, "'Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways.'" that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Now, I, I want you to memorize that verse or to score it or write it somewhere or to somehow mark it because it really tells you the secret of Christian growth and experience. Let's look at it. First of all, it begins, If I have found favor in your sight, that can be translated, Since you have shown me grace. In other words, Moses' requests here are based solely on God's grace. Now, he's asking God for three things, and we looked at this when we studied it together, but here in verse 13 is his second request, the second of his three requests. He says, let me know your ways. That is a great prayer for you to pray to God. Let me know your ways. The the Hebrew word ways is is a word that refers to ruts that are left by feet or wheels passing constantly over the same ground when i was growing up in south alabama we had two acres and we lived on the edge of civilization behind us there was a bunch of forested land that somebody owned but we never saw him and so we kind of adopted it as our own and we had a world war ii red willies jeep and as a teenager i loved driving that jeep back through all those woods and and of course it was red Alabama clay. And so I would go back and it didn't take very many trips over the same ground until those tires started cutting ruts in the, in the ground because the ground was always wet. It rains all the time in Mobile. And so you had these ruts and they got deeper and deeper. In fact, when it, when it rained right after the rain, that red mud was so slippery that if you tried to stay up out of the ruts, kind of on the high point, you would just slide back down even with that Jeep. That's this word. The word ways is ruts. He says, God, show me your ruts. That's what he's saying because metaphorically this came to refer to habits or patterns of behavior. Those those ruts you cut in your life by doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. Did you know God has ruts? And aren't you so glad? God has predictable behavior. He's not capricious. He's not different from day to day, from generation to generation. Moses says, God, show me your ruts. His actions have worn deep ruts that can be traced and followed. But notice what he says then in verse 13. This is key. Let me know your ways. Let me know your predictable patterns of behavior. Now stop there for a moment. He says, I want to understand what you're like. And then he says this, that I may know you. Well, wait a minute, Moses. I thought you already knew God. I mean, think about it. Moses had already spent 40 days on Sinai with God, just him and God, second person of the Trinity together. Well, he did know God, but he wanted to know God better. He wanted to grow in the depth of his relationship to God. And how does that happen? Moses says, let me know your ways. Let me know your ruts. It's only when we begin to understand God's ways, his predictable patterns of behavior, that we really come to know God And then Moses adds in verse 13, so that I may find favor in your sight. In other words, when I truly know you like this, it's going to bring even greater grace. That's the request. God's answer to that request comes down in verse 19. He says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. In other words, I'm going to tell you what I'm like. I'm going to tell you my predictable patterns of behavior. And he does that. He fulfills it down in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7 where he says, I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and so forth. There, Yahweh declares his predictable patterns of behavior. But don't miss the point. We grow in our knowledge of God as we grow in our knowledge of his ways. If you try to live an emotionally driven Christian life, If that's the engine of your Christian life, it will destroy you because it never satisfies, because your emotions can never carry you along through all of life's issues and troubles. But let me tell you what can. It's understanding God's predictable patterns of behavior, knowing how he is and how he responds. That'll carry you through. As one writer puts it, Stewart, he says, there is little room for mysticism in biblical religion. We do not know God by having some sort of inexplicable, ethereal communion with him in which our feelings are used as the evidence for our closeness to him. We know him by learning his ways. In other words, by objective rather than subjective emotional means. So you know God as Father if you're a Christian, but you need to grow in the depth of your relationship with him. What does that look like? Well, we know what this looks like in real life. I have three daughters. When my daughters were conceived, at that moment, I was their father. And that reality never changed. I've always been their father. I'll always be their father. But early in life, a few months in, they began to realize that, in fact, I was their father. Right? They began to recognize me as such. And, boy, that'll melt your heart to have your daughter run at you with some pronunciation of father they began to recognize that. And then as gradually over time, they began to know something about me. They, they knew that if trouble was around the corner, I would protect them. So if they saw some, something coming that was threatening, they ran to daddy. They knew that I would provide for them if they had some need. They knew they could come to me and that I would meet or seek to meet that need. But it's only as they reached maturity that they have come to know me. And that only happens as they have grown in knowing more about me, knowing more about my ways, knowing more about my character. Folks, that's exactly how it is with our Heavenly Father. From the moment of your spiritual birth, Christian, He has been your Father. Whether you've sensed it or whether you've not sensed it, whether your emotions tell you that or not, When you repented and believed in Christ, he became your father, and that's always been true. But growing to understand that and to understand him only happens over time as you grow in your knowledge of his character, of his ways. The purpose of John's first letter and ultimately of all of the apostles' proclamation is that we may have and know that we have fellowship or relationship with God, with Christ and with God's people and that we can grow in that relationship. John's second purpose for writing, will only take a moment, it really builds on the first and it's in verse four, it's the fullness of our joy, the fullness of our joy. Not only just the the assurance of our fellowship but the fullness of our joy. Verse four says, these things, it's probably a reference to the entire letter of 1 John these things we write. Now stop there for just a moment. Why does, why does he say we write? I mean, John's writing this letter and in chapter two, verse one, he says, I am writing. So why here does he use the plural pronoun we write? Probably it's because he sees himself writing in solidarity with the other apostles even though they're all dead. He's the lone surviving apostle because together they were witnesses. Together they proclaimed this message and together they all desired these purposes to be fulfilled. Verse 4, these things we write, here it is, here's the purpose, so that our joy may be made complete. Now by our joy, John doesn't mean only his joy. He means his joy and the joy of his readers. He's using it in the collective sense. All of our joy. Because John's joy would be incomplete, and you understand this. John's joy would be incomplete unless his readers experience the same joy. He wants us, and remember, it's ultimately the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who inspired this letter. So the Spirit wants all of us to experience complete or fulfilled joy. How does that happen? It happens when we have assurance that we know the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, there's no greater joy than an inner assurance that we are truly children of God. Knowing God will get you to heaven, but knowing that you know God will bring heaven to you on earth. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, he says, assurance makes a Christian patient in tribulation calm under bereavements, unmoved in sorrow, not afraid of evil tidings, in every condition content. It sweetens his bitter cups. It lessens the burden of his crosses. It smooths the rough places over which he travels. It lightens the valley of the shadow of death. Again, knowing God is what's crucial to get you to heaven. But John wants us to know that we know God so that we enjoy heaven right here. Our joy, however, will never be fully complete in this fallen world. Certainly, we can experience the joy of verse 4. That's why he's writing this letter. We can experience this joy here, but, but because it can't be really complete joy until heaven, it looks ahead to the life to come for its ultimate expression. It reminds me of Psalm 1611. In your presence, there is what? Fullness of joy. Now look again at the prologue. I want you to see how amazing the mind of the Spirit is. Verse 1 begins in eternity past, the eternal Son with the Father in the beginning, and it moves forward in verse 1 to the Incarnation when Christ was here. And the, the rest of this passage covers the time He was here, extends into the church age as, as John writes to these believers who never met Christ. But then verse 4 extends into eternity future when we will experience nothing but unmitigated, unchanging, unending joy. Perfect joy. How do you respond to this? Well, there are two responses I want to just mention to you briefly. First response is, I really want you, you individually, to ask yourself this question. Do I know God? Do I know God as Father? I'm not asking if you know certain things about God. We all do. I'm asking you, do you know God as Father? You can know Him as Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you will repent and believe in Him, then you can know God. You can be adopted by God. You can become His child. And my prayer is that you will do that. You will abandon your sin, your rebellion against Him, your own way, and say, God, change me. Save me. Make me your own. Make me your child. The second response is for those of us who are Christians. And that is please clear the clutter of mysticism from your idea of the Christian life, this experiential, emotional, m- emotion driven form of Christianity. Let your emotions be the caboose, and let a growing knowledge of God be the engine that drives your Christian life and growth. Diligently read and study 1 John to gain the assurance that Christ Himself wants you to have, and then to experience the fullness of joy that comes because you have that assurance. Let's pray
1: together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed, and that concludes our current series, The Apostles' Proclamation. Tom will begin a brand new series on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. But before we leave you today, here's Tom with a closing thought.
0: You know, friend, if you've been with us through this series, then you understand that the gospel is is believable, it's trustworthy because of the witnesses that saw it and gave witness to us of its truth. So the question for you is, have you come to believe in that gospel? Have you repented of your sins and put your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in his death and his resurrection? And if you have, is this gospel at the very center of your life, Is this what wakes you up in the morning, what compels you to live through the day, and what will take you ultimately into the Lord's presence? This is what we have received, and this is what we have believed.
1: Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener— We'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org.